Thorburn. I'm a professor of literature and comparative media studies and the director of the MIT Communications Forum. It's my uh, truly happy privilege to introduce uh, our speakers today, two of whom are close friends and colleagues of mine. And I uh, took on the introduction task in part because I feared that if I allowed Eurikio to do the introduction, he would be too modest. And uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as the senior member of the CMS faculty, I have the right to brag about my colleagues. Uh, I, so, I, so my plan then is to introduce the three speakers and turn things over to William Eurikio, who is really the official moderator and controller of the discussion. Let me begin by introducing my colleagues, Henry Jenkins and William Eurikio. Uh, both are prolific, influential scholars, visionary teachers and lecturers, and shapers of a program here at MIT that I think in 10 or 15 years will be recognized as one of the signature achievements of the Institute. Perhaps the only major difference between Jenkins and Eurikio in a sort of intellectual or moral sense is that Eurikio is visionary with a better fashion sense. Yeah. <laughs> but they're both riveting uh, uh, thinkers and, and, and uh, scholars about the relationships between old and new media, which is, of course, one of our fundamental topics today. As you know, Jenkins is the director of the Comparative Media Studies program. He is the Peter de Florence Professor of Humanities at MIT. And his most recent book, Outside Here on the Front, in which uh, uh, one of his uh, blurbers compares him to McLuhan and says that Henry is the 21st century McLuhan. I think myself that underestimates Henry, but that, that has to do with, that partly has to do with, with, with my sense of McLuhan. Uh, uh, it is, it is, it is a, uh, uh, in any case, uh, uh, the, the book has just appeared, and in some sense it's a kind of a distillation or summary of things that Jenkins has been teaching and writing about for, for many years. I'm sure the book will have a powerful and significant impact on uh, American culture and on, especially on, on our understanding of emerging media. William Eurikio, equally distinguished as a scholar, has specialized as, uh, particularly in, in, the, in an earlier moment of transition and my hope is that he will uh, be more than merely a moderator today, that he'll, that he'll bring his own knowledge of that moment when the, when, 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 when the movies appeared in, 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 Europe, in European and American culture to bear on our, our discussion today. Uh, he is, with Henry, uh, the co-director of the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT, and he also holds a, uh, a, a, a professorship in comparative media history in the Netherlands at the University of Utrecht. His most recent book, is entitled Media Cultures, and it's about responses to media in, in post-9-11 Germany and the United States. Uh, it's a, uh, been a privilege and, a, and, a, and, an, and an education to work with William and Henry these years, and I, uh, over these years, and I'm particularly pleased that they're taking part in our discussion today. Our third speaker, Jochai Benkler, is a professor of law at Yale University, where he teaches communication and information law. He is the author of many articles uh, uh, on aspects of, of our emerging digital universe, 
uh, and many of them deal with aspects of what we might we we might identify as as the question of of, of a digital commons or of a, of of a space protected from or separate from traditional market forces. And he's been he's, some of his essays, I think, have been immensely creative in this way. And he is, as most of you now know, the author of a book that's been hailed again and again uh, by people both inside the territory of cyber studies and new media and by um, more traditional sorts of folks who might be thought to normally ignore such things. The book, of course, is called The Wealth of Networks, How Social Production Transforms Markets and Freedom. We had a speaker here uh, Tuesday, part of this series on newspapers, who told a small gathering of CMS graduate students and faculty that he thought that Benkler's book was the most important book of the year. Now, of course, this was, he hadn't seen Jenkins' book yet, so that may be, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, in, but in any case, this is a kind of characteristic response to uh, Yochai Benkler's work. And I might add that, that uh, one of the things that has struck me about the response to Benkler's work has been uh, this, that in those environments where one might not expect an automatic embrace an automatic enthusiasm for the sorts of ideas that Benkler is suggesting in his book. For example, in places like the Times Literary Supplement, uh, the London Times Literary Supplement, or in the, or in the uh, New York Review of Books, uh, the reviews that he's been getting from literary and traditional public intellectual types, even when they have disagreed with him, have been remarkably respectful and, and uh, uh, civil, and I think it's a mark of the power of his argument that he's beginning to sort of reach out, his argument is beginning to reach outside of the territories where such discourse is congenial and usually accepted. As you all know, we're, we're, we're engaged in a kind of ongoing conversation about the future of newspapers and the nature of news and information in our digital future. And I want to uh, uh, offer a special thanks to the CMS graduate students who have been uh, constituting what I take to be now the sort of core audience of this, of this um, uh, venture. My hope is that those of you who have returned for our second conversation today and will return again on October 5th for our final uh, installment of, the, of these discussions will help us to keep the discourse on point. Uh, it's, I'm very, um, I, and I want to indicate my, 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 my gratitude especially to the, to the audience and my hope that the audience will, will, will continue to make the kind of intellectual contribution to our discourse that has been the mark of communications forum events. William. David, thanks very much for the, uh, the warm words. I think on behalf of all of us, the very warm words. Um, I guess I would agree with uh, the person you mentioned that these, we're sitting here with the authors of the two most important books that I've read this year, that's definitely for sure. Uh, both books charting a course through a profound moment of, of media change, not just media change, but societal change. Um, both books alert us to an array of possibilities and also to the dangers posed by the status quo and some of its institutional presences. And what I think is really terrific about having the two here at the table, besides the fact that they've been sort of trailing one another in series form in many different venues, uh, uh, Yochai appears and Henry shows up a week later or vice versa, this is the first face-to-face -face meeting. And what's terrific about the work is, is it, the reciprocity of the work. Henry's convergence culture moves from the cultural, that is to say the domain of fan activities, bloggers and hackers, towards ultimately the social. And um, 
you know, Kai's work, uh, the, uh, book, The Wealth of Nations, uh, sorry, The Wealth of Networks, with its reference to Adam Smith, I mean, it's got the ambition, <laughs> sorry, yeah, it certainly has the ambition, and I think delivers. Uh, we will see in a, another generation or so, but I think it is as seminal as Adam Smith's work. Um, moves from the social, that is to say, the notion of information economy, legal and uh, polish, policy choices, towards the cultural. So although they're coming from two very different directions, in fact, they're occupying the same terrain. Um, the format will be that uh, each speaker will talk for about 15 minutes, lay out their positions, and then I'll have a few questions and we'll open it to the floor and take it from there. So, okay. Well, great, thank you. <coughs> Too many nice things said about you, so I'm, uh, I'm uncomfortable. Um, it, is, it is truly great uh, uh, and wonderful to be here. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to Henry. Uh, this this uh, hopefully should be great fun. Uh, I'm assuming um, uh, a lot of knowledge, so I will be even more telegraphic than I usually am, which for anybody who's already heard me speak should be scary. Um, but let me try to do this in 15 minutes so that we have a lot of time for conversation. Um, and I want to talk about the economics of uh, uh, social production and then spend some time talking about the politics, uh, uh, which will be the place where I think I'll, I'll be able to do the most work tying into uh, journalism. So first, the economics. Let's go back 150 years. Between 1835 and 1850, the cost of starting what was understood as a mass circulation new daily newspaper in New York jumped from what is roughly $10,000 in 2005 terms to roughly two and a half million dollars. And the difference between two thousand dollars and two and a half millions is that for two and a half million you need a business model. What we saw around this change in the technological and organizational structure is a stark bifurcation between consumers and producers with passive large audiences and professional and particularly in the US commercial producers organized in one of the two ways in which we knew how to collect capital in the industrial period, markets or states. This ends up repeating itself not always for technical reasons, sometimes for policy uh, uh, choices uh, in radio and television and satellite and cable and the mainframe until we get to the network computer. Here's another image. <clears throat> Scare and fear in the United States in the middle of 2002. The fastest supercomputer is no longer produced by an American company paid for by the American government. It is a Japanese company paid for by the Japanese government. Very scary. Sigh of relief, collectively, two years later, IBM just inches out the NEC Earth simulator. <laughs> Everyone at the same time ignoring that throughout this entire period, SETI at home dwarfs both of these. Four and a half million computer users sharing their leftover computer cycles when they're not doing any work. What I'm trying to, to capture with this image. What we're seeing here is not decline in capital intensity overall. It's the radical decentralization of capitalization. Computation, storage, and communications get distributed in the population so that every connected person, somewhere between 600 million and a billion people, has the physical capital means necessary to engage <clears throat> in information, knowledge, and cultural production. This creates a new condition where the most important inputs into the core economic activities of the most advanced economies are widely distributed in the population. That is computation and communications resources, 
and human creativity, intuition, experience, and motivation, which are held by individuals, are non-fungible, <clears throat> and are widely distributed in the population. What this does, critically, is take behaviors that were once on the periphery of the economy, widespread, but on the periphery of the economy, things like having coffee with friends, stopping to answer a stranger on the street when they ask you for directions, move from things we do because we're human beings to things that compete with market activities, that create market demands, that can be inputs into economic production, that can be things that platforms economically are built to do. We see the emergence of commons-based production as a much more significant force, which is to say production without exclusion from the inputs, production without exclusion from the outputs, which can be individual or collaborative, can be commercial or non-commercial. The critical feature is that in addition to the physical capital availability to act, one also has the formal authority to act with it. There is no property rule that says you must ask permission. A major, um, a major important subset of commons-based production is peer production, by which I mean large-scale cooperation among human contributors that does not depend on either the other traditional decentralized model of coordination, the price system, or on centralized coordination through uh, firm hierarchies. We also see this happening, and the economics are a little bit different because the underlying resources are different in sharing of material resources when they're widely distributed in the population. Distributed computing, wireless net meshwork, distributed storage, various mixtures like Skype, we won't talk much about these today. What we see, what are we talking about? We're talking about free and open source software, for example. Would you imagine in 1996 if somebody told you that a bunch of volunteers were starting to build a web server because they understood the web was important, and Microsoft did the same thing, they over the next decade, through boom and bust, the main application that manages the e-commerce applications everywhere, 20 or 30% of the market would be volunteers and 60 or 70% would be Microsoft. You'd say that's insane, but of course the reality is the opposite. It's Apache that has the 60 or 70% through boom and bust uh, uh, throughout these periods. Um, we are seeing things happen like Mars click workers, already old at this point, of people, tens of thousands of people, marking images coming in from Mars because the problem is chunked up and generating maps uh, as volunteers at the rate at which the images are coming in and when it's measured at high quality. There are arguments about Wikipedia, right? How good is it exactly? How does it compare to Britannica? But if you stop for a moment and say, in 2001, in February, this guy, Jimmy Wales, puts on a thousand stubs, more or less, on an interface that allows anybody to do whatever they damn please about the thing. And you would sit there and say, you know what? In about five years, this will be arguably as good as Britannica. You're <laughs> ludicrous. And so we have this Nature article four years and ten months later that does exactly this and sends out definitions to practicing scientists. And what do practicing scientists say about science definitions in Britannica and Wikipedia? They're both crappy <laughs> to roughly the same extent. And that's the critical point. And there are arguments about the quality of this study, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that it's a plausible argument four years and ten months later. We can keep talking about Slashdot, about Flickr, about Delicious. I don't need to tell you. They're all over the place. We're also seeing things like uh, Connections' effort to apply peer production 
to particular production problems, like, for example, teaching materials and getting teachers to be able to collaborate on producing teaching materials together. So as I said, commons-based peer production, the radical authority and practical capability to act, which allows for self-selection, taps diverse motivations, particularly intrinsic and social relational, taps diverse insights and capabilities and availability. The whole knowledge movement, knowledge management movement of the last decade in business schools has been about the problematics of deciding how, of figuring out how to manage knowledge production. This is done now in a decentralized form. We see diverse cooperation platform doing a lot of things. And I can happily go into that later. I don't want to go into all of the details of how this is broken down. Allowing self-selection, allowing communication, allowing people to interpret what they're doing as a social human uh, act, creating norms, trust, etc. Basically, what we see is that we used to have three models. Market-based models could be decentralized or centralized, the price system and firms. If you wanted something that could be done outside, that needed to be done outside of the market, but you still needed to collect the capital, you did it through government or you did it through traditional nonprofits. And what we see now is the emergence of social sharing and exchange as a major additional modality of production. This creates new competition. We all know these stories, P2P, recording industry, free and software, Wikipedia, etc. Also new opportunities from well-behaved appliances to production tools, from bifurcated consumer and infrastructure goods to dual-use machines like Wi-Fi or Skype. And what will matter for us here, from finished information and cultural goods to, to platforms for self-expression and collaboration, be it uh, GarageBand, be it multiplayer online games, be it something like Technorati, a lot of what comes in under this broad, uh, 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 vague umbrella term of Web 2.0. We see surfers. People make contracts because they say, stuff will flow out of connected human beings. And I'm so sure of this that I will make a commitment that I will deliver such and such and such and such a day for such and such an amount. Sounds crazy. I'll pay people to participate in this, but I won't own any of it. Sounds crazy until you looked at IBM's revenues, the largest patent holder uh, uh, in the United States. Uh, green is patent revenues. Blue is Linux-related services uh, revenues. Look at the BBC. They learn the only images from inside the underground are people with their camera phones. So now they're beginning to work with help us make the news. What do you have? And just this morning, I was talking to people in public broadcasting, and the person from the BBC who has been working on this is talking about the problems of how to manage the traditional culture of the BBC with this new model. But they understand that there's enormous power there. So social production is a real fact, not a fad. It's the critical long-term shift caused by the internet. In some contexts, it's more efficient than markets or firms. It's sustainable and growing fast. But it is a threat to and is threatened by incumbent business models. When we look at intellectual property, at telecommunications, and a variety of other new and funky laws, they are the battlefield where the incumbents are trying to make it expensive and hard to do these new things. <clears throat> Which brings me to the politics. How we understand the world, how we communicate about it, how we know what the state of the world is, how we talk about how it might be and who wants to do what, are central to both freedom and justice. So how we produce information, knowledge, and culture then plays in to autonomy, to democracy, to justice and development. And I won't go through all of these now, but let me tell you a story that will, I think, help us uh, understand how this meets. So as you may recall, in 2000, uh, the US had something of, a, of, of, of uh, some, some irregularities in questions of voting. And so in 2002, 
there were uh, people introduced voting machines in Georgia. You would have thought the mainstream media would cover this, but in fact there was almost nothing. All there was were a few stories. People are worried, but we're told by so-and-so that it'll be okay, and by so-and-so that there'll be a lot of support. And of course, so-and-so is the person selling the machines, and such-and-such -such is the person who bought them from the person selling the machines, uh, and that's it. One, uh, uh, one activist finds the source code, puts it on her own site, puts it also on a New Zealand site, and this is what's different. If you look at the way that it's set up. So here are the materials. See for yourself. We might be subject to people trying to shut us down. Make copies. Not make sure we can sue against an injunction. Make copies. Some of these things are corrupt. Uh, some of the files are password protected. But here are these nice people from lostpassword.com. They'll help you. Some of these things won't run properly. But here are these nice people from ZipRepair. Um, <clears throat> they'll help you. We have no money to pay anybody to look through these and, and try to figure it out, but it's really important. If you find anything, post it here. Um, we'll make it clear. And in fact, it does happen. And we have Avi Rubin from Johns Hopkins doing an analysis, Maryland reading that, doing another couple of studies and requiring modifications. Bev Harris then becomes a node. And when somebody finds a cache of emails, sends it to her and sends it to Wired. How does Wired report on it? Can you believe these idiots lost their stuff again? And that's it. What does Beth Harris do? I know what to do. I'll put them up. This time, however, Diebold knows what to do. We have Digital Minimum Copyright Act. These emails, they're ours, and you can't have them. Copyright. Take them down. End of story. Not quite. Because some Swarthmore students <laughs> replicate them and have them up. But Diebold knows what to do. DMCA letter, you have to bring them down. End of story. No. <laughs> No, because at that point, a network of individuals and collaborations of legal actors and illegal actors and quasi-legal actors, of commercial actors and free software developers, create an ecology that replicates, resists, persists, bringing ultimately to the case where a few Californians find, as they're looking through these emails, that it turns out that many of these machines are not the machines that were certified. And so there's this great dramatic moment where somebody comes as they're about to certify the machine and says, wait, Perry Mason moment, wait, I've got these emails. And after two months, almost uh, 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 more than half of the machines get decertified. Now, it's not that law wasn't there ultimately to protect them. They win that a declaratory judgment that it's not copyright infringement, that it's free. But it comes a year later that's too late to affect the results of the returns. What is effective is this system, not the law. So we can talk about this later. More democratic after all, no, not everyone a pamphleteer, but what we see is a structured web that offers visibility to more people in accreditation and filtration clusters that allow people to figure out what they care, more free of the constraints on speech, though not perfectly so, emphasizing what's intensely interesting to groups of people who are intensely interested as opposed to what's moderately interesting to very large audiences. Where interest comes from is important, and I hope we get a chance to talk about that later. Very strong linking practices, a very strong see-for-yourself culture, um, and an easier-to-form purposive association. Um, I won't talk about critical culture, uh, 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 but, but it's obviously part of, 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 of this, both uh, the reemergence of folk culture and the transparency and legibility of the materials, <clears throat> I'll just say about 50 words about justice. 
in an information economy, a global information economy, more of what makes for human welfare and development depends on information, knowledge, and culture. Be it health and life expectancy, this is the human development index components, education and literacy, or GDP per capita, each of these is dependent on information-embedded tools, information-embedded goods, information and knowledge. Books and teaching materials, food security, medicines, all of growth driven by innovation and each feeding into each other. And what we're beginning to see is commons-based and peer production beginning to help by no stretch of the imagination a panacea in free and open source software for purposes of, 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 of critical infrastructures, in open academic publishing, and perhaps beginning on open learning materials. Open source and agricultural innovation. We're beginning to see the BioForge trying to replicate SourceForge for purposes of biological innovation, initially in agriculture, maybe in other areas. Certainly bioinformatics with the HapMap, haplotype mapping project, efforts at open source biomed. So here's a free high school science text from, from uh, uh, South Africa. Here's the HapMap project. Here's BIOS, biological innovation for an open society. Because of the battles, because of the fear of the competition, we're seeing a battle over the institutional environment at all levels, on physical infrastructure, on machines, on software, on, on, on content. And the law keeps flipping the toggles mostly in favor of the incumbents. But social practices, political resistance, market drives of people who actually can make money from serving what it is that people want um, uh, are pushing back. So, Technological threshold conditions enable greater individual human agency. Social sharing and exchange emerge as a major modality of economic production. We're beginning to practice new ways of being free and equal human beings, but this is subject to a global and persistent political battle, the stakes of which are how we become more productive, but also more free and equal as human beings. All right. Um, as William suggests, we, uh, we, the two of us come at this question, more or less the same set of questions, from different disciplinary and theoretical perspectives. That is, we fundamentally agree, I think, this is not going to be a classic debate in any stretch of the imagination. Because on most every issue that we're going to think of, I think there's a general consensus about what we think is happening and what some of its larger implications are. But how we approach that question is very different. And from, for me, I'm starting from the, re from the perspective of someone who's researched fan cultures, popular culture, mass media, and moving toward a perspective on what we're, what we're going to call in this discussion civic media, uh, which includes not just news and journalism, but large, all of those media that we rely on to define our connection to each other and define that structure of feeling we might call of citizenship. And that's, that's really the starting point I'm going I'm to make in terms of the topic we have on the table here. Um, on the screen, you have the covers of two new books I have coming out, and I'm going to talk just briefly about the Star Wars picture under, on the fans, bloggers, and gamers cover. The other one is not actually the cover of my book. It gets changed, but I, there's a reason why I still have this image here. Uh, the picture of the stormtrooper is interesting. This is a picture that appeared in newspapers across the U.S. after the more recent, most recent Star Wars films came out on DVD as a set. It got enormous pickup by the mass media. It had, on, uh, interestingly enough, Lucasfilm had absolutely nothing to do with this image. 
right? This was a guy, a fan, dressed up in a stormtrooper uniform, went to his local Toys R Us. His friend took a picture with a cell phone camera. They uploaded it to Flickr. They notified the media. And this was in newspapers around the country. And I've had such great fun imagining Lucas and his company's response, mixed feelings, at this image hitting the news. On the one hand, this is great publicity. They couldn't pay for this kind of publicity. On the other hand, they had no control over the message. And for a traditional mass media organization, that's a source of enormous anxiety, that loss of control, the sense that your consumer could say what they want and affect the fortunes of a major Hollywood release to some degree. I mean, we don't want to exaggerate the degree to which this picture shaped the fortunes of Star Wars, but it did have a dent or impact on the public's perception. All right, to the other picture here, let me go to a bigger version of that picture on the TV screen below. This is an image called, from a, site, a website called Bird is Evil. And Bert is Evil did a series of Photoshop juxtapositions of Bert from Sesame Street with a, was caught in a variety of scandalous situations. Bert in bed with Pamela Anderson, Bert on the grassy knoll uh, during the Kennedy assassination, Bert waving flags as a Ku Klux Klan member, and here, Bert with Bin Laden. And this was done by a Filipino-American high school student who put up this website. It was popular on the web, like so many YouTube phenomenons, maybe Lonely Girl 15 or whatnot. It bubbled up. But what happened next, no one was prepared for, which is that after September 11th, uh, in Pakistan and Bangladesh, <laughs> protesters constructed a poster uh, of images of bin Laden. And they did it by scanning the web, grabbing attractive images of bin Laden, and slapping it on there. And if you look closely, you will see there's Burton bin Laden as <laughs> part of this image that was waved by hordes of angry anti-American protesters following <laughs> September 11th and was captured by CNN's cameras and broadcast to the world, which prompted the folks at Children's Television Workshop to threaten to sick their intellectual property lawyers on someone. And I've, <laughs> you know, and I've, I've been having great fun imagining the Bush administration unable to find the cave in Pakistan where bin Laden is, but the intellectual property attorneys from a Children's Television Workshop tracking him down and hitting him on a cease and desist order uh, for their use of Bert's image. Uh, now, if you think about the story, what we're seeing is a number of things. The, the interplay of top-down and bottom-up media, the interplay of sort of broadcast media, Sesame Street, CNN, a bottom-up media, whether it's the web, original website we're talking about, the Bert is Evil site, or the poster maker in the Middle East, both of them in a kind of collision course where they affect each other's fortunes. And the message that emerges, the media culture that emerges, is shaped top, up and top down and bottom up. It's shaped both by decisions made in teenagers' bedrooms and decisions made in corporate boardrooms. And the intellectual property attorneys are struggling to make sense of a, a regime that is changing out from underneath them so fast that they really can't understand the terms in which the culture is operating. So this is what I mean by convergence. I'm not talking about a technological process. This is two images of convergence, by the way. A corporate prospectus talking about the orchestration across media and a protest site talking about Bill Gates as the Borg absorbing everything. This is the debate about convergence as we see it. And it's not, to my mind, a fundamentally technological process. It's not about which black box will all the media in our lives flow through. It's a fundamentally cultural process. That if, if we wait for the black boxes to resolve themselves, I think we got a long way. Because on the one hand, in my living room, more black boxes than ever before, and the, the remotes are in the couch cushions, the cords are tangled, nothing works through each other. On the ground, convergence is a kludge. 
above ground. But on the other hand, if we say talk about convergence as a cultural process, and we say, do we live in a world where every story is going to, every image, every sound, every brand, every relationship is going to be conducted across the maximum number of media channels, legally or illegally, corporately or at an amateur level, then I think we have to say we already live in a convergence culture. All these things are working together to ensure the flow of media, whether it's top-down media organizations controlling all of the divisions of the entertainment sector, the five companies everyone's concerned about, or whether we're talking about grassroots interest taking media where they want it, when they want it, how they want it, in whatever form they want it, illegally if it's not available to them legally. Those two forces meet together to form what I'm calling convergence. So convergence is understood you know, in an orchestrated way, transmedia storytelling. I talk in the book about participatory culture, you know, the idea that our culture is going to be more participatory, but that no one is sure what the terms of participation is. So even within a company, mixed signals, conflicts, fans are uncertain what their rights are, so forth. And then the flip side of that is what we might call experimental, experiential marketing, love marks, viral marketing. The, the advertising world has a variety of ways of talking about the fact they want to, quote, empower us as consumers to spread the message about their brand. So everyone's describing a world that's going to be more participatory, that's going to be more transmedia. What we're not talking about, again, is interactive technologies. That's the old category. And I see interactivity as a property of technological design. And that's very, very important. What we're talking about is participatory cultures. And I'm using the term participation to refer what cultures bring to the table whether it's part of the technology or not. So the contrast here is the iPod, which is organized as an interactive technology to enable certain flows of music, and podcasting, which is a form of participatory culture that emerges around that technology, seizes it and pulls it in its own, its own direction. So I'm interested in participation, which is sort of outside the box, that shapes the way the box is used. And of course, what's taking place inside the box has affordances and resistances that affect what you can do with it. Key to this in the civic sphere is this concept of collective intelligence, which I take from Pierre Levy, right? And what Levy is telling us is that in a network society, more and more we're creating new sources of power that emerge as people are able, people from diverse backgrounds are able to pool knowledge. As Levy puts it, in a world of collective intelligence, nobody knows everything, everybody knows some things, and what's known by any given member is available to the group as a whole on a moment's notice. It is to use another term flowing around right now, Cory Doctor's term, an adhocracy, in which groups from very different backgrounds put information together to serve common purposes. And it changes the, the collective intelligence, the ability of this community to process information, is a very different order than the ability of the, of the individual. We saw it in the example about the black voting boxes. I saw it a decade ago when I was looking at fans' response to Twin Peaks versus the average viewer's response. Average viewer was saying Twin Peaks was becoming so complicated no one could understand it. The fan community is saying Twin Peaks is becoming so dummy down and simple I'm bored by it. It wasn't the fans were more smart than, more intelligent than the average viewer. It is collectively they process the information at a faster rate. They were able to combine knowledge in new ways. They're experimenting with a new source of power that grows out of the ability to process information. All of this contributes into what I'm calling participatory culture. And people say, well, you know, yes, some people are becoming more participatory. This is some statistics from Pew, looking at high school students, a study done last year, found 57% of teens who use the internet are media producers. 
right? So there's still a concern about the 43%, and we can talk about what I call the participation gap later, but the point is that this is a generation of media producers, and media producers that by and large are producing media in response to mass media. And that's where I think the, in, the interest, again, in the top-down, bottom-up stuff becomes very interesting. You know, I, people say, we live in a world where five companies control the flow of media into our lives, and I say, yes, that's probably true. Other people say, we live in a world where there are no gatekeepers and anyone can post anything they want, and I say, yes, that's true. The point is, we treat those as parts of an elephant, and we haven't talked about the relationship between those two things, and the degree to which mass media provides the content that then participatory culture absorbs, reworks, transforms, appropriates, recirculates, and so forth. Now, what does this have to do with civic media? I'm going to now sort of pull away from the space of pop culture and into news media just a little bit, although I hope to blur the lines between them in this presentation, because I don't think there's a simple line. In, this, you know, in the same way that top-down and bottom-up are blurring, the notion of what is news and information and what is entertainment are blurring, what a citizen is, what a fan is, are blurring in some fundamental ways. We're at a period of time, Levy uses the term an apprenticeship stage, where we're acquiring skills at participatory culture and collective intelligence. We're learning how to do it. And right now, I'm arguing we acquire those skills more readily in our recreational lives and our civic lives. That right now, we're acquiring skills as fans and gamers and bloggers circulate around games, around popular culture, and so forth. And those skills are rapidly being deployed by other sectors, by education, by religion, by the military, by advertising, by, by you know, political activist groups. That the skills that are acquired from fan cultures translate into new forms of activism on a really rapid basis. So interestingly enough, we both have slides of the London bomb blast. And it's an example of where amateurs carrying cell phones collected images of the blast in London, put them up on Flickr, and they became a kind of very important record of what took place. The same thing took place around Katrina and the images that are generated there of average people uh, sort of sharing images of the street, and it changed the coverage of Katrina. I think you know, people always talk about Anderson Cooper and what he did on the television news, but I think if people were not hearing firsthand reports and seeing firsthand images through a variety which is for channels, the criticism against the Bush administration's handling of Katrina would have played out on a very different basis. And I think the fact that people are carrying cell phone cameras around collecting data, sharing data at the present time is part of what led to that context. And here's some, some of the images that amateurs took of Katrina that look very different from the first wave of images we saw through the mass media following Katrina. At the same time, people were using this, this pro process to critique media coverage. Right, this is a website that just put images from different newspapers up, and the captioning, that the whole point was that these white people were finding bread and soda where this black person was looting a grocery store. Right? You couldn't tell it from the pictures, but the caption clearly makes a moral distinction between one group of people taking food and another. Current launches at about, you know, is another example of the civic media, Al Gore's television network. Lots of the content, the, the idea is much of the contents generated by amateurs with camcorders, recording their own media, editing it, uploading it to its site, user moderation, and so forth. Their user participation is taken for granted. Access to your local cable distributor is maybe a bit of a problem. And that's where you see we're bottom up. And people are starting saying, why should I go through the narrow pipeline of a commercial network to get on cable when Al Gore can't? Al Gore, the former vice president of the United States, can't get his network into many systems around the country. But I, on Flickr and YouTube, can get my images up overnight and have them seen by people and tap this grassroots channel that's starting to publicize things. Here's Bush in 30 seconds. Uh, Move On ran a campaign where people you made 
anti-Bush commercials, and they were uploaded on the web and judged. And how many of those people started by making Star Wars fan videos or skateboarding films? They used the equipment and learned how to use it through amateur grassroots pop culture and began applying it. And the model for this comes really from Project Greenlight, which was a reality television show. And then the, producer, the organizers of this campaign acknowledged that's where they got the idea for this approach from. This is talking about Katrina. Uh, the group, the legendary KO, our hip-hop group from Houston, started recording stories from refugees at the Astrodome that they felt were not being told in the mainstream media. They recorded them as a song, which in fact called George Bush Doesn't Care About Black People, sampled Condé West. The song went up on the web for free. Within two weeks, it went platinum in traditional terms. The number of downloads of the song was equal to the number of sales of a top-selling record. With no publicity campaign, no major label, simply the blogosphere picking this thing up, promoting it, rendering it more, vis more visible for public discussion. It, it makes true what Chuck D had talked about a long time ago, that hip-hop and digital distribution would be the black band CNN. That is, the ability of people to record immediate responses to public events outside of the framework of the mainstream media and put them into circulation. People would begin to be drawn to that, and you would begin to see story stuff bubbling up. And this is a good illustration of that process. Right? Thinking again about Katrina, the ability of amateurs to juxtapose news photographs in ways to make commentary is very much part of this, what I jokingly in the book call Photoshop for Democracy. But it's, you know, this is an example coming out of Katrina. This is uh, another kind of example of Photoshop collage. Uh, uh, this is uh, another example of the kind of images that people are generating at the present time. Let's think of these as the equivalent of editorial cartoons. That is, they're not deep, they're not profound. What they do is encapsulate a public policy debate in a single image that is potent enough that it at least makes you laugh and think and pass it along to someone else. But the ability of these images and the tools to create this as a space of public commentary, I think, is changing some of the ways we think about current events and issues. This is a scene from a film called, a film called French Democracy. It's, a, it's a made on using the game engine the movies. Movies was designed to take machinima tools and make them more widely accessible. And it was the, one of the first highly publicized use of it was a response to the student protest in, in, in France. And Peter Molyneux, who made the game, was really excited by the fact that it's being used for political purposes right off the bat. So we're seeing more and more young people drawn toward politics by their commitments to popular culture. Voting as fans, whether it's through MTV's Rock the Vote or other sorts of movements. And we're also seeing, in a network society, television content becoming the center of political debates. Television does important work in this. Not, this is not just about fans speaking in a vacuum, but it's about the work as civic media that entertainment may play to provoke discussions. And part of the power, as I said, wrote in my blog recently, that we watch West Wing in, in blue states and we watch 24 in red states. Right, it is a paraphrase of Barack Obama, that as we watch the same TV shows across political lines, the blogosphere becomes increasingly partisan and split and schismed. Communication around television enables conversations that might not occur elsewhere. West Wing last season did a really interesting thing of mirroring two purple candidates. That is, people use the term purple to talk about candidates who straddle red and blue politics. That is, we have a John McCain Republican versus a Barack Obama Democrat in the, in the main narrative, and they model different rhetorical framings of the political debate 
that suggest ways out of a purely partisan divided election. And around that, there was enormous discussion by activists and by fans about which of those ideas could work in the real world and which couldn't. The present one of those debates, I think, is taking place around Survivor. That is many, there's been a lot of controversy about Survivor's decision to have a racially segregated cast this season. And I think one of the productive things out of it, and I have mixed feelings about it, one of the productive things is it forced a, it's forcing a real discussion about race and its place in America today among people who normally avoid the topic, that people are asking questions about race, discussing race. A lot of ugliness is coming out, but a lot of also correction is coming out, that the choice to have a show where you have four races, not two, already challenges the normal framing of race in American culture, that the, that the discussion involves a world where whites are now in the minority and that it's a majority-minority population on that island already forces people to think about some of the demographic shifts in American culture. I see the debate that it creates is valuable, whether or not the show did it for a ratings push or whatnot. The fact we now have this world where television content can be political, the fan discussions around it is grassroots, and it may be a space for discussions that would not take place in more heavily charged political channels, it says something about what's going to be needed for civic media to get us out of the partisan divide that we're currently in. So I see more hope when I look at games communities and fan communities for bipartisan discussion than I see when I look at discussions on newspaper lists and things that are normally defined as political. And so that's where I'm going to end my opening remarks. But it suggests, I think, some of the ways that I'm getting from talking about popular culture to talking about political culture or civic media or news media that I think there's some interesting trends there that we really want to pay attention to. Okay, so we thought we would just have a little segue to a uh, sort of in-time demonstration of some of the things that both speakers have talked about. Peer produced media, networked, uh, blurring the lines between producer and user, blurring the fact-fiction divide. One more example, and then we'll be off to the discussion. true or false. I leave such judgments to you, Inspector. Our story begins, as these stories often do, with a young up-and-coming politician. He's a deeply religious man and a member of the Conservative Party. He's completely single-minded and has no regard for the political process. The more power he attains, the more obvious his zealotry, and the more aggressive his supporters become. But if your ultimate goal is power, how best to use such a weapon? It's at this point in our story that along comes a spider. He is a man seemingly without a conscience for whom the ends always justify the means, and it is he who suggests that their target should not be an enemy of the country, but rather the country itself. Three targets are chosen to maximize the effect of the attack. Fueled by the media, fear and panic spread quickly, fracturing and dividing the country until at last the true goal comes into view. Eventually, several extremists are tried, found guilty and executed while a memorial is built to canonize their victims. But the end result, the true genius of the plan, was the fear. Fear became the ultimate tool of this government and through it, this party launches a special project in the name of national security. At first, it's believed to be a search for biological weapons, and it's pursued without regard to its cost. However, the true goal of this project is power, complete and total hegemonic domination. 
What we need right now is a clear message to the people of this country. This message must be read in every newspaper, heard on every radio, seen on every television. This message must resound throughout the entire interlink. I want this country to realize that we stand on the edge of oblivion. I want every man, woman and child to understand how close we are to chaos. I want everyone to remember why they need us. Killing us. Truth is, there is something terribly wrong with this country, isn't there? Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression. And where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and suppressing your submission. We need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you. He promised you order. He promised you peace. And all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent. So if you've seen nothing, if the crimes of this government remain unknown to you, then I would suggest that you allow the 5th of November to pass unmarked. But if you see what I see, if you feel as I feel, and if you would seek as I seek, then I ask you to stand beside me, outside the gates of Parliament, and together we shall give them a 5th of November that shall never, ever be forgotten. Okay, so I'm not sure how many of you have seen the film, but the the logics of the film as well as this little uh, uh, remix are, are kind of evident. Again, it speaks to lots of dimensions of what's been discussed as well as the problem of how we evaluate Fox News or CNN News or whatever. But the question in my very limited time that, my, uh, that, I, that I'd like to put forward actually has to do with what we know. Henry, I think, mentioned this notion of the, that we're in the apprentice stage. We have a new set of realities, a new set of practices. They're, they're obviously growing very quickly. How do we need to enable, what do we need to do to enable our, our citizenry to be able to critically and actively engage with this? Is it a matter of porting over existing skill sets, for example, notions of accuracy from present day journalistic practice, notions of attribution? Um, do we need to sort of train people in what currently exists, those relatively long-term traditions, or is it a matter of generating new sets of skills in comparativity, in uh, the notion of thinking about news as a process rather than as a set and series of facts? Where do we have to lean in order to make maximum advantage of this, to, especially in the terms of, of civic engagement that we're here to talk a bit about? You, you want to? Uh, you're, you're the guest. Go ahead. Um, I'm a little baffled about who we are and who we're teaching. Um, uh, um, and I think that's a little indicative of uh, the, the very different framework. Um, uh, there's a context in which when you think that there is a uh, relatively well-defined elite cadre of producers who can then claim uh, authority 
they can also go through a certain pedagogic uh, process and a certain set of training experiences that then you can in, in some way manage. Uh, um, I think we, and in this case the we is people studying this phenomenon, are at a much earlier stage than being able to say what we, and that's how I interpreted you as people who think about this and think that they are in a position somehow to affect the education of people uh, are capable of even saying that. I'd say uh, as more as an observer than an intervener at this stage, um, that what we are seeing um, is uh, the beginning of learning uh, critical reading. Uh, I think existing in a universe with many different inputs uh, without the traditional indicia of authority that nonetheless turn out to be right uh, more often, uh, that increasingly in the last few years have shown that the more traditional uh, uh, bearers of authority like mainstream media uh, are wrong, make mistakes. Um, and here I might be a little over-optimistic, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, I think we're beginning to see a set of practices that are more about investigation and intelligence gathering than they are about seeking, uh, uh, than they are about being able to read the signals of authority. So if you know that a certain typeface tells you you're interacting with the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and a different typeface tells you you're, you're interacting with a tabloid, and that's, uh, and that's a form of literacy that maps onto authority. I think instead what we're beginning to develop is um, a much more provisional relationship to all forms, uh, to all streams that come our way, uh, and much greater respect for what we would understand as research, which is taking inputs as provisional uh, uh, claims of truth, uh, bearing some probability of accuracy, looking at multiple places, um, and then cross-referencing and coming at the end of the day still to a provisional judgment, not more than that. Um, and I find that enormously attractive from the perspective of democratic culture uh, because cynicism, skepticism, not cynicism, skepticism uh, and inquiry uh, are the beginning of independent thought and, and, and participation. Yeah, I, 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 first of all, I, I agree with the assessment that as Levy's notion of an apprenticeship phase implies we're learning from someone. At the moment, we're learning from each other, that we're learning within communities, where ideas move rapidly from one community to another, that social communities of all kinds are observing other kinds of social practices, cultural practices at the present time, and the learning curve is enormously fast because of the principles of collective intelligence that I was talking about earlier, that all it takes is a few cross members from one group to the other for all the messages acquired, all the lessons acquired to take place. In my blog the other week, I wrote about uh, Stargate, uh, which is a series on the Sci-Fi Channel that got canceled. Within four days, there was a fully articulated website involving dozens of strategies by which fans were organizing to respond to the decision of the network. And interestingly enough, it was a global movement within four days. That is, they realized that the show was doing well in countries around the world, that it was doing better there than it was in the United States, so why should America get to decide whether the show stays in production 
are not, and so they had templates of letters in 12 different languages that people were writing uh, in to put pressure on local networks and then put pressure back on the production company to keep the show. It was a global strategy uh, that was about connections that already existed within a network, and they'd acquired all the other strategies that every other fan community the last t 10 years had used all in place within four days. Uh, of the ability of this community to rapidly mobilize all those tactics in response to the network's decision making. And the same thing's taking place in the political sector. It's taking place in racial communities and ethnic communities and cultural communities. That we're seeing this, this learning take place at a very rapid level. That said, I'm concerned about what I call the participation gap, which is simply not the digital divide as we talked about it for the last decade, which is about access to technology. Right? And we've done a long, long way toward ensuring that every kid in America through their schools and public libraries have access to, to the internet. Not, not all of them have reached it, right? There are resistant pockets in tribal communities and rural areas and so forth. But most American kids, statistically speaking, have access, but they don't have the access to the kinds of skills and experiences which enable them to take advantage of that technology. So if, they, if the, the world is of how you acquire these skills is very different if you live in a world where you've got 24-7 access to broadband in your home and you live in a world where you have 10 minutes of connectivity in a local library with slow bandwidth and you've got no ability to store what you produce and upload it uh, and now we've got, we've got mandatory federal filters, you know, federally mandated filters on what information you can access and if the DOPA Act, the Deleting Online Predators Act passes, then there will be restrictions on your ability to use social network and blogging technologies in place so that the unequal access to these skills is a very real problem that we have to think about. So the work we've been doing here in New Media Literacies has been to try to write what are the core social skills and cultural competencies we need and how do we ensure across a variety of platforms young people have access to them through schools, through after school programs, through community programs, through church-based programs, through homeschool communities. It's not one top-down solution, but we have to think about what their skills are. My colleague, Dr. Thorburn, would be pleased to say the first and most important of those skills is learning how to read and write. It's fundamental to anything else we can. If you can't read and write, you can do none of the other stuff that we're talking about. Also, there are core research skills that schools should have been teaching for the last hundred years or more about reading sources, critically the stuff that we were just talking about. But beyond that are all kinds of new skills that are emerging as we think about what it is to be a participant in these online communities, and those are going to be skills central for citizenly participation as they are for other kinds of participation. And we're issuing a white paper in October that will lay out what we think is a blueprint of core skills that we think young people need to acquire. I say not, not that they should be taught, because I agree with you that they're acquiring them as much informally through outside of school activities, but they have to be sure that they're there for those kids who don't have access to those participatory cultures and whose only access is through schools and public libraries. Mm. I share your optimism, absolutely. But for the sake of uh, conversation and playing devil's advocate, the AstroTurf movement is a really good indicator that not only do users learn quickly, but that the power structure learns quickly. And if we look at uh, the last presidential campaign's use of the blogosphere, it was brilliant. It was really quite, not, quite strong from both sides, although the Republicans, I think, did a far better job. And if we look at, that's where timing is interesting. In your example of, of the Diebold voting machine debate, while about a very different process, the legal process, you know, finally there's a good decision, but it's a year late. That's a point of concern, right? A well-timed well uh, AstroTurf campaign can throw things off just enough. 
So I guess that's what I'm, I, I agree that I, these are certainly the, the, the sharpest skills are the ones that are emerging bottom up, but we don't really have metrics at the moment of how pervasive those are. And um, so it makes a, a video like the one we just saw, which on the one hand is, is, is in some ways quite brilliant, but in some other ways is also kind of irresponsible, at least at a moment where 36 to 46% of the U.S. population, depending on the poll, thinks that the U.S. had active complicity. Perhaps they did, but that's not translating itself into political action, it seems. Um. Well, I think I, um, um, I think in this regard, it's important. Um, it's important not to be uh, utopian and, and not to. And I don't think it's a it's a question. Well, when you say it's a question of for the sake of the argument, for the sake of the argument, it would be to say to continue the sentence in a way that you didn't, which is and therefore this is bad, right? because it's all a question of baselines. Um, are uh, decentralized, non-hierarchical systems uh, susceptible to attack? Sure, there are interests in any system that are that make them that that as long as there's a drive to attack the system to corrupt it, um, there will be somebody trying to attack it. The question is, as with any system, what are the defenses? Um, in the mass media environment, uh, you have a relatively small set of targets that require a particular set of strategies for which these parties have optimized. Uh, and this is both political parties and um, uh, companies trying to affect public policy, be it about regulation, perceptions of global warming, of smoking, or what have you. Um, and so we have uh, a long literature of the corruption of the, of, of the mass-mediated commercial public sphere as something that has been successfully essentially attacked as a place where people um, don't get to express themselves, do get to be manipulated, do get to have their, their, their information curtailed in all sorts of ways. So when you compare, when that's your baseline and you ask, that's why I say, no, not everyone a pamphleteer, not the utopia, but we're also uh, are seeing discrete, well-defined advantages. Um, and we're seeing attacks. We saw uh, uh, people in Congress changing their biographies on Wikipedia. We saw Wikipedia not allowing anybody from Congress to, uh, 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 from coming from a congressional IP address to change Wikipedia because you can't trust them. Um, uh, just the other day, there was the story about the Democratic, uh, 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 the, 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 the campaign in, in New Jersey where the Republican uh, 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 candidate was, was, was pretending to be, uh, dem uh, uh, we're sending people pretending to be uh, Democrats and trashing. The attacks are, 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 uh, are there, um, and as with any system, uh, you develop defenses. Um, none of them are perfect, uh, but I think th that it's at that level. And it's, yeah. the, first of all, it's the baseline. Is it better? And second, it's understanding that it's a system that with high stakes, it will be attacked, and it needs to develop certain defenses, which we're already beginning to see. There's another round of critiques, of course, that's been I, I guess it's a almost knee-jerk reflex. We've seen it with every medium so far, where people, A, construct the medium as a determiner. The technology determines certain social structures. We've seen it with the rise of the rotary press, with the introduction of film, broadcasting as mass medium. There's a whole history of it, and its latest instantiations are people like uh, Cal Sunstein, for example, in his notion of the echo chamber effect, or uh, Ithiel de Solopool, who talked about the 
kinds of fragmentation that this, this particular networked computer technology would bring about. So that would be a critique on a somewhat more uh, structural level, right, that these are about allowing, enabling certain cohorts, but not necessarily joining those cohorts together into some kind of larger public sphere. And I'm curious as to how you would um, take on those, that, that sort of persistent line of critique that... Uh, <coughs> I have my answer, but you no, want to. Well, I, let, me, let me go. Yeah, I want to, sure, sure, sure. before sure, we yes, jump into sorry, that, I want to go back to the AstroTurf question. First of all, I want to make sure everyone knows what we mean by AstroTurf, which is fake grassroots. I think it's already symptomatic of a shift in power that powerful institutions now feel it necessary to pretend to be bottom-up grassroots organizations in order to be heard, right? The idea that you would fake grassroots content and put it on YouTube, as some of the anti-Gore people did, around, uh, you know, the, the Undeniable Truth film this summer. That's a very interesting story uh, to begin with, right? That, that, that in the past, one would have imagined the power of governments and major corporations to speak through broadcasting would be sufficient to get their message out and to change public opinion. Now we're in a struggle where they actually have to adopt the tactics of the powerless in order to be heard at all suggest that there's an, under, there's an underlying anxiety within the system, that, that the system has worked over and over again to correct and ensure the visibility of that is also, I think, very telling. And, and Ben Clear was talking about the Wikipedia. I happened to run into Jimmy Wells yesterday in my hotel in Newark. Strange coincidence. He was there at the same time. And we were talking, and he was telling me about Stephen Colbert, uh, you know, normally the, the sort of on the side of the people in this struggle, but apparently urged all of his viewers on, on broadcast TV to go out and change the entry about elephants on Wikipedia. And it took less than 30 seconds for the Wikipedians to arm themselves and block off any attack on that. So that they started finding stray references elsewhere that referred to elephant. And again, the Wikipedians <laughs> shut this down. And now the Wikipedians are monitoring reruns to ensure that whenever that episode plays again, they're going to be ready to prevent any attack on the integrity of information in that space. So I think the idea that, you know, that this is a war and there's going to be struggles and there's going to be fake stuff out there. And the analogy I drew, I've drawn recently is to humbug, a concept of the 19th century, uh, where there was a kind of pleasure that people who have written about P.T. Barnum talk of the pleasure people took of debunking things like the mermaids, the stone giants, and so forth in the 19th century, using the knowledge of the time when popular science was very much in the air to critique this, this stuff at a period where science was in flux. Anytime information is in flux, there's a pleasure in playing with humbuggery, right, and, and sort of debunking things, applying our knowledge, pushing back on things. And so we're in an era of the fake as, as real, we're in an era of the lines between fake and reality blurring, and that is its political skill instantly. This goes back to what I'm saying that we acquire through play skills that we're going to use and for serious purposes almost immediately. That skill that goes from playing with reality television, playing with Lonely Girl 15, immediately gets applied to AstroTurf. And I think we're seeing lots of good cases. Not that we're going to win every battle, but that we're seeing more and more power emerge from the bottom up in response to those attempts, and the very act of attempting to use bottom-up media to communicate political messages from powerful groups says that the old structures of power are in flux. But I didn't address your question, so do you, you want to? Um, <laughs> I'm free to ignore my colleague. Uh, we, we do this all the um, time. Um, but the answer is the same answer. 
uh, which is to say, um, it's a fantastic story you told about Wikipedia, um, but it also, uh, b b partly because it emphasizes that the problem of uh, um, credibility, accreditation, uh, is itself an information production problem. So everything we see about uh, the, the feasibility of peer production of information generally is also a solution space available to solving this particular problem of ferreting out the astroturf, finding the credibility, et cetera. Um, but now to your, to, to, and, and actually it's funny because, because there are two people here who've studied changes of Wikipedia uh, and the degree to which, the speed with which the community uses its force to self-correct uh, uh, visually, and, and maybe you'll talk about that later. Um, um, the Babel objection. Uh, so, um, fear of fragmentation uh, certainly, uh, 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 I mean, I, there were two things. Uh, one was technological determinism, which we all have to guard against, uh, because if you're actually trying to explain things in technological terms or in terms of a particular technological change, you of necessity are at risk of placing too much of an emphasis on technology. I have the same risk in, in doing w what I do, and you always have to keep that in mind. But specifically, you were talking about fragmentation and, and polarization. Um, that's an empirical uh, claim, as opposed to a, a, uh, something that's, that's deeply uh, 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 theoretically based. And I think what we have today uh, as a matter of um, observing uh, 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 patterns of use um, is a, a little bit of, of Goldilocks. Not too fragmented, not too concentrated. I don't know about just right, but somewhere in the middle, which, which again, as I say, sounds a little Goldilocks-like, and therefore immediately you should be suspicious of it. Uh, but um, we do have a decent amount of, of uh, research in graph theory on the ways in which people actually at least link to websites, to blog posts, etc., which has generated one kind of response, particularly from the people doing the analysis, which is to say, no democratization, there's just concentration, this is the, this is the, this is the idea of the power law distribution of links uh, on the web. So, so when you find that at the level of the web, when you find that at the level of the blogosphere, the initial interpretation is all this democracy business is bunk because really there are a small number of sites that millions of people link to and therefore presumably millions of people see and there are millions of sites that nobody links to. So really there's no real democracy and that's been so for example um, 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 Albert Barabashi uh, who, was, who wrote the first piece in science in 99 uh, uh, working on these things came out with the book uh, 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 um, uh, Linked. Was it Linked? Yes. Um, in which he basically says um, no democracy. That's only an interpretation. I think when you actually look at this, uh, at this data more closely, what you see is that when you get to relatively, first of all, that sites cluster along interests. You won't find it surprising that political blogs link to each other more densely than they do to laundry detergent sites. Um, once you get down to sufficiently tight communities of interest, but not two or three, hundreds, even low thousands, the distribution tends to have a very long visible tail, 
but a much less curta- uh, uh, but a much less long low visibility tail. So what's, basically, what you get is tens or even hundreds of sites that each has ten or so links, and so there are hundreds of entry points that are moderately visible, and the things that are intensely interesting to people, those end up being uh, uh, broadcast. At which point, the long, the, 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 the long end of the tail, the very visible sites, are no longer broadcast stations that everybody tunes into, as much as broadcast towers for whatever it is that the community of interest has found is interesting. And they're visible enough to already be seen at a higher level cluster. And that creates an attention backbone that's very different. And you see linking across. So that's how the public sphere essentially is created, because you do have more visible sites. But the way in which their agenda is created doesn't come from the top based on what's interesting to millions, but from the bottom about based on what was interested to this particular community of interest and this higher linked uh, uh, community of interest. Now, I haven't done the original research. This is my interpretation of other people's research when their own interpretation was, we found there's no democracy. Uh, but they've also, but that, the, their interpretation is there's also no fragmentation. There's too much concentration. So the fragmentation is wrong, just as an empirical fact of how we link. Now, the only question is, have we gotten so much that we've lost the democracy, or are we somewhere in this Goldilocks space? And this is the analysis that I think suggests that we are actually much better off than we were in mass media, and nowhere near the fragmentation that leads to a babble. So I wanted two, two responses to the Sunstein argument. The first is to read a passage from Ithiel de Solo Poole, a political scientist from MIT, who in a book, Technologies Without Boundaries, which is his last book published after his death in 1984, wrote, predicted the following. He says, we can expect that there will be a great growth in specialized intellectual subcultures. If this happens, the complaints we now hear from social critics will be just the opposite. Or the complaints we hear from social critics will be exactly opposite from today's. We're likely to hear complaints that the vast proliferation of specialized information serves only special interests, not the community. That they fractionate society, providing none of the common themes of interest and attention that makes a society cohere. The critics will mourn the weakening of the national popular culture that was shared with all, by all within the community. We will be told that we are being deluged by undigested information on a vast, unedited electronic blackboard, and what a democratic society needs is shared organizing principles and consensus and concerns. Like the present criticism of mass society, these criticisms will only be partially true, but partially true they may be. A society in which it becomes easy for every small group to indulge its taste will have much more difficulty mobilizing unity. And it's very wise description of not just the change in political behavior wrought by network computing, but the flip-flops of social critics who move from being concerned about the power of mass media being too concentrated and immediately move to anxiety about fragmentation or groups not being able to talk to each other. That there are certain people who will always be critical of the dominant information structures of society, and they'll flip their terms readily enough if it allows them to remain outside and skeptical of the current development. So I think we need to be cautious about following that criticism. I think Sunstein makes a mistake only a law professor could make. No, no intent. But, but not all of them do. Not all of them do, yes. Which is to say that he confuses all social activity with politics, which is, you know, which is to say that if we lived only in partisan political communities online, it might well be true that the only information that penetrates to us was those that agreed with our preset agenda, although I share your, your arguments that it's actually more complicated than that. But because we are glass blowers and gardeners and stamp collectors and viewers of reality television 
and you know, people of ethnic backgrounds and so forth, and those other communities are clustered around other issues. The permeability of information on the web seems to me is much greater than a Sunstein-based model would suggest. And that gets back to what I suggested earlier about the degree to which civic media today may include media that don't seem to be about politics, but which enable discussions of citizenship and political issues. That is, the most powerful spaces we need to find are those shared spaces which are not so rigidly defined around politics that we're able to talk to each other across those differences by finding other levels of commonality. And those recreational groups seem to me play a very important role in that process at the present time. And speaking of the political, we should probably open this up and, uh, to the audience as opposed to this centralized discursive podium or platform. Questions from, from you folks? Uh, please come up to the microphone if you do. I'll ask one in the interim. I've been really curious. I know you've read one another's books. Were you to be embarking on your project again? Any changes or? Yeah, I'll, I'll start on this for once and then be. Uh, please, if you're ready for quick, come on up for but, questions. You know, I, I think what I've learned most from reading uh, The Wealth of Networks is to really think about a more complex terrain of participation. That is, if I had a criticism of my book re after reading his, it is that I'm really interested in commercial culture and I'm really interested in the totally amateur sectors of cultural production in the book. That I'm looking, I'm looking at the extremes. And because it comes, because I'm coming out of fan culture, I'm interested in, in consumers and I'm interested in producers. What he introduces is the, and really reminds us of, which I should have remembered all along, was all of these other bodies, nonprofit groups, partisan groups, uh, political parties, governmental parties, which are also part of the political landscape, which shape how the relations between those two groups, that there's all kinds of float between those different sectors. And Ian Bogert has, has done a really long review of my book on his blog that I've responded to. And his, this, this criticism that hit me the strongest was the criticism that I didn't spend enough time talking about alternative media that wasn't part of the sphere of popular culture. I'm so interested in popular culture and its participation that I lose track of these other civic media that are not pop culture. And I think that's what this book, more than anything else, helped me to think about in very new terms. And I find myself drawing on it more and more when I, find, when I struggle with those issues. And I know through the work we're doing with MacArthur and other projects we're looking at that that space in the middle is going to be more and more important to the work that I'm doing. Uh, you know, it's around the edges of that book, but it's not at the center of the book, and for good reasons. But I think I'm much more alert to it now. Well, I, I actually think I just emailed Henry a couple of days ago that in some senses I, I wish I'd had this book when I was writing, and on the other hand, thankfully I didn't. Uh, <laughs> because um, it does, it does, uh, it did make me uh, realize how much of, of, with all the caveats and the efforts to avoid it, I still am very much a materialist in terms of my explanation um, uh, with all of the efforts. And that, it, to be able to locate it in the cultural would have been enormously valuable and at the same time would have made it very hard to anchor the explanations that I still con continue to think are right and stable and important about the change in material conditions that drives uh, uh, all of this. Um, and above that, it's you know I, I, I do my best to add as, as you saw from the one from the one slide to have my, my 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 chapter on the intersection between this and cultural production and development of critical culture. But it's um, um, hopelessly naive uh, 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 and simple by comparison. Um, and it would have been enormously valuable to be able to build on this as understanding the intersection between cultural 
and the material and political conditions and the economics driving and the business uh, 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 environment, uh, on, 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 not on the media business, which I don't actually work on at all. So the, the intersection would have been, allowed me to do a much richer uh, job or just pointed and said, here, that's me. <laughs> Candice. Um, so I'm interested in how your models work when it comes to scientific issues. So when there's some kind of translation uh, required and when people don't have enough time to research it, I mean this idea of provisional claims of truth, if you apply that to the issue of climate change, for example, um, that has you know, caused enormous havoc in, in the general public trying to understand it. I'm sure people on Slashdot might get it, might be able to adjudicate scientific claims, but I think it's much more difficult um, to adjudicate when you don't have a scientific background. I mean, here at MIT, it's kind of the, the perfect question to ask here. Um, because people are able to, to figure it out here, but they might not be able to in the wider public. And um, I, I just wonder how those models then work when you really are dependent on some kind of mass media translation, like Gore's film. You know, it's sort of not necessarily in the news, but you know, the news definitely has played a large role in him even wanting to do that film in the first place. Yeah, I, 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 I would. Yeah, I, I. Science is a really tricky area, and I'm not sure that I've thought through all the implications of it in that space myself. I certainly think there's room for experts in all of the models that we're talking about. You know, I, I do think that traditional, in the same way that traditional media provides content that gets worked through by these various communities, I think experts and public intellectuals play vital roles in opening up these dialogues and giving public the knowledge it's going to need to adjudicate kind of core, core questions. The, the network society is not uniquely vulnerable to this problem, though. I mean, uh, you know, the biggest issue I see with experts today is the razzle-dazzle that takes place in American courtrooms when pseudoscience gets drugged in by trial lawyers and who are unable to, and I don't mean this is another slam at the law profession, uh, but, but I think, you know, okay. you, I, I, you know, if you look at the ways in which, say, brain science is now being introduced in courtrooms to juries who have no ability to, to deal with it. A top-down traditional expert system didn't give us very good ways of dealing with scientific knowledge uh, when, it, when it translated into public actions in a democratic society. I'm not sure a network society gives us a lot more other than, you know, making it possible, you know, putting a lot of information out there that allows people to at least read more critically. But it is a problem. I, I, I'm not sure. I don't want to be glib in my answer to that, that question because it's an area that I've, I know just enough to be stupid about. I, I think it's, it's important in this case as in others always not to compare to utopia but to baseline. And baseline is mass media, mass media culture and commercial mass media culture. So there's a study, for example, that look at the, looks at the instances of appearance of... Um, arguments supporting the uh, facticity of uh, global warming as opposed to arguments uh, questioning uh, uh, the argument. And if you compare scientific uh, articles, there's almost no serious publication with any kind of uh, uh, disagreement. But if you compare mainstream media, it shows almost 50-50. So what have you got? Do you really have translation and literacy of the science? Or do you have an effort not to offend that 
embeds the concerns of the translator rather than effective translation. On the flip side, if you look at Wikipedia, and so the study in nature that I, that I showed about the level of accuracy and the quality of Wikipedia articles, now you have a free encyclopedia for people to go look at that is no crappier than uh, the gold standard of encyclopedias available to anyone freely and showing up very high on Google searches so that you do get the translation. You get it at a reasonable degree of, of, of uh, 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 clarity without the distorting filter effect of the concern of commercial media to simplify things and to make them uh, non-controversial in certain ways and very controversial in other ways, but nonetheless filtered through those interests. So when you compare it to that baseline, uh, as opposed to how do we really get authority, I think we're actually um, seeing uh, a positive progression even on that side. My question is, what are the deal breakers? Both of your books end with um, calls to action of sort, uh, language about this being a critical decision. Um, our, our conversation today has been largely positive about um, how these things are happening despite the actions of incumbents or other forces. Um, Yoka, you mentioned, for example, infrastructure issues, uh, especially last mile access and this, the, the hope of mesh networks and other technologies in addressing those shortcomings. Henry, you've discussed um, efforts like uh, like the DOPA Act that could cut off large swaths of the population from this sort of participation. Um, are there deal breakers? And if so, where are those? And for those of us that believe in the cause, where do we focus our efforts? Go ahead. Um, I used to be uh, less optimistic. Uh, sometimes I almost catch myself in moments that I say that uh, there are no deal breakers anymore, which I used to mock people who did for a very long time, 10 years ago, and say, no, 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 if I thought this was not up for grabs and, and not still effect, I'd go do philosophy of law. I wouldn't do this because then it wouldn't matter. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think a critical deal breaker are trusted systems. That is to say, uh, a regulatory requirement that will require manufacturers of these general purpose machines to turn into glorified TVs that are well-behaved appliances that can be trusted when they leave the factory floor to continue to behave as what that was intended and not as their owners want them to behave. Um, this is uh, being driven and has been now for five years by Hollywood um, uh, because of the failure of software-enabled uh, 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 encryption, the systematic persistent failure of digital rights management uh, over time. Um, that's, uh, uh, so, so the effort to move it to the hardware uh, could be a real uh, stopper because it, it breaks the cycle of free software development it breaks, uh, uh, it means that uh, machines uh, will not treat all information equally and it changes the dynamics of innovation at the edges. And to the extent that what I see is driving is precisely the decentralization of capital, uh, uh, of physical capital, that's central. Um, 
depending on how it works, the question of net neutrality and broadband access, that's that long list of things that I, that I had in the next to last two uh, are, are the efforts to identify those. Uh, I think broadband duopoly is potentially a problem. I think the primary solution to that is um, uh, open wireless networks, uh, mesh networks where people actually share, create their own last mile loop by sharing their wireless access. That seems to be sort of maybe on the way. I'm not sure. Uh, 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 the viral communications program at, at the Media Lab is doing work on this. People doing on wireless mesh networking here are doing a lot of interesting work on this. But that's a potential place. Um, software patents could be a place where, I, I, again, I'm going from physical blockages to logical blockages to management of the cultural uh, commons uh, uh, um, um, uh, blockages. At the physical, as I said, both, both the machines and the transport. Um, software patents, in principle, could make things hard in terms of free software development and keeping things open. Uh, but, but again, in both of these layers now, I'm a little more optimistic than I was five years ago because I think the number of companies that are seeing billions of dollars worth of revenue coming from relying on open standards, building around free and open source software, um, resisting uh, having to uh, pay the last mile providers, um, uh, resisting uh, uh, taking away this enormously valuable machine and converting it into a set of special purpose devices, um, has changed the political economy so that it's not at all clear that any of these will in fact move further forward. Software patents were stopped in Europe because they were implemented through a regulatory process as opposed to through a judicial process and a little later when there was mobilization. The rise of the counter movement, of the access to knowledge movement both nationally and internationally now is beginning to show the change in politics so I'm more optimistic that those won't happen. Um, and so. Uh, uh, um, less, uh, these are very, I mean, uh, uh, the issues of um, 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 how broadly, how broad participation will be, uh, how it will be skewed, the issues that Henry was talking about with regard to uh, participation skills, those could very heavily be affected by those kinds of regulations, so that only if you have your own private means will you be able to learn. Those could be not deal stoppers in the sense that the whole uh, uh, environment won't move along, but 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 uh, distorting forces. Um, so you ask what we can do. Uh, we can do all of these things, right? Part of the things we can do is what we're already doing, which is create, share, adapt Creative Commons license, adapt open licensing, uh, act so as to create living proof of the alternative, and to change the interests involved so that more and more people have an interest in keeping things open or in opening things that are already uh, closed. Uh, direct political action um, uh, is the other thing. So roll your own and participate in politics and make intellectual property, patents, copyrights, the various other neighboring rights, a major political issue. But again, we're already seeing that. We're seeing the free culture student movement. We're seeing in, in uh, Access to Medicines, the University Allied for Essential Medicines, 
movements. We're seeing globally iCommons and the access to knowledge movement bringing together people doing access to medicines with people doing information commons, with people doing encryption freedom, with librarians wanting to deal with archives, with people dealings with ICTs for development. Um, all of these people, I'd say, in the last two years have begun, or not all these people, people from all of these movements have begun to see the connections among them and to form connections with some companies like IBM, like Cisco, like Nokia, when nobody's noticing, um, um, and a variety of others who see also their own interests involved are beginning to build that kind of a social movement at, in the first instance to prevent the use of law of, of to prevent the use by incumbents of law to shut this down. And every year or every half decade that the environment is still open entrenches practices, entrenches expectations, and allows people to change uh, 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 and allows businesses to adapt in ways that make this change less susceptible to attack through law. Yeah, I, I would second much of what was just said. Um, I, think, I think participatory culture is here to stay. There probably are no deal breakers that end an era of participation. I think the terms of participation are under active debate and struggle at the present time, including who's allowed to participate, what kinds of participation is possible, what's the relationship of participatory culture to the mass media culture that dominate, still is going to dominate the information sphere for some foreseeable future. Those are important struggles. If we were to reduce, since I come at this from a cultural perspective rather than legal or technologically, I'm inclined to read those through two lens. On the one hand, there's the threats posed by Hollywood. Right? And Hollywood's attempt to protect its intellectual property leads many of the technological changes we were, we were talking about, clamping down users' rights, clamping down what consumers can do, extending through technology well beyond what the law would allow them, pushing the law to its outer limits, intimidating consumers. And the result is going to be some kinds of consumer practices or citizen practices will be much harder to justify, will be pushed further underground. I, I believe perpetually that people find ways to route around things, but they don't necessarily route around them in ways with equal visibility. And I think some, certain cultural practices are being shut down pretty systematically at the present time, and there are real struggles over that. Uh, the other side is Hollywood's enemies, right? The moral critics, uh, the cultural conservatives, and by cultural conservatives, I mean, of course, liberal Democrats. Um, because I think the real danger is not coming from Republicans in the Senate and the House, but from liberal Democrats like Hillary like Lieberman and others who represent, I think, extremists in their desire to savage young people's access to technology in return to appealing to soccer moms. You know, that I think, I think the real threat politically right now is coming not from Republicans who, of course, are opposed to participatory culture, but coming from Democrats who are willing to give, sacrifice it because it doesn't cost politically a lot to go after young people and their relations to technology. And DOPA is really at the center of that debate, but it's not just that the law is going to be passed that will potentially block large numbers of young people of lower income populations from being able to connect the social networks that are central to youth culture in the United States today. It's not just that people who want to protect kids have decided the best way to do it is not to educate them, you know, which I find a really curious perspective. That is, if people really believe that young people were at risk from MySpace, you would think you'd want to bring it under adult supervision and you'd provide knowledgeable adults at libraries and schools and community centers to help them rather than locking the schoolhouse gate and saying, deal with this on your own. You know, that, that, you know, that, so it's obviously not about that.
But it's also the pathologization of participation that takes place, that the criminalization of consumption that's taking place, the use of rhetoric which leaves adults nervous about young people who participate in the media space, that leaves adults, parents, teachers, principals shutting kids out of the participatory cultures that they're immersing themselves in, giving them unequal access to those technologies and those cultural experiences. So it's that war, the culture war discourse, both sides are impinging on the participatory culture. Both Hollywood and its enemies are shaping the way young people will relate to this technology at the present time. And much of the problem comes in the crossfire between the two, both of whom are trying to you know, shut out the potentials of participation that I'm describing in the book. Um, kind of building on the legality and the political aspects of what you're talking about, um, you know, the, Henry's arguing that there's, you know, the, the participatory culture is gaining pace um, and that people are sort of more connected and more mobilized. But for me, the, 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 the deal breaker is that if the laws don't change with this, then the people still remain impotent, maybe not at a consumer level, but at a legal level. And I'm just wondering, will, um, you know, would people live in, at a time when file sharing was so publicly um, uh, that the arrests of people changing MP3s was um, so publicized. I think people are afraid sometimes to exercise their political um, capabilities. And I just wonder um, whether law will ever become a bottom-up process. Um, uh. <laughs> Yeah, we want to put Black's law books in Wikipedia form and just rewrite them as we go. No, I mean, I, 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 uh, this is a deep question um, in terms of the theory of law uh, because the question is, is law and the system for generating laws uh, amenable to being a progressive system? or is it primarily a reactive system? Is the source of law um, what we usually teach in law schools? That is to say, the way legislatures work, the way judges work? Or is the source of law first social practice and social movement that is then where law exerts a relatively conservative role in limiting the, the swings of social practice, but ultimately moves along as social practice uh, 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 evolves and changes uh, to enable those practices. Um, uh, I'm, uh, uh, you know, so for example, there are, there are fascinating studies of whether Brown versus Board of Education was really that important in desegregation. Uh, whether it really played that central a role as, as uh, uh, two or three generations of legal scholars and constitutional scholars have really given it that credit. Or was it really the civil rights movement ultimately ratified and implemented through the 64 and 65 acts, which then generated what became a set of practices that led to an imperfect but nonetheless much more significant success of the Second Reconstruction. That's a real question that I think continues to be open within legal theory. Um, uh, in this particular case, as I look at the last decade, um, law has been reactive and conservative. 
Um, and the interaction of social practices and commercial practices has been the progressive force. If by progressive I mean moving towards the new stage, and if I mean by it something that's normatively attractive, I analyze the ultimate practices from the normative perspective, and I find them more attractive. And so I worry about how do I bring law along to ratify, to get out of the way. Um, uh, but as I said, I don't think this is a solved question within legal theory about the relative roles of social action and formal institutional relationship with regard to uh, uh, the progressive uh, change in, in, in the way society acts and is governed. I, I feel a, 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 a powerful obligation to ask our uh, panelists to uh, turn to the topic of our of our, <laughs> of, our of, of our discourse, and I want to uh, uh, pose the question in a really simple simple way to give to give you both as much sea uh, uh, room as possible in your answers. Uh, essentially, this we knew that when we formulate when when Henry and I worked on this series, we knew that this session would expand very boldly and much beyond questions of newspapers, and I think it's been very productive and helpful. But I would like, if possible, for both of you to turn your attention specifically to the implications of what you've been saying about this emerging empowerment culture uh, and the uh, tradition of uh, news gathering and information consumption that we associate not just with newspapers but primarily with newspapers. Is it a cause of concern to you that the statistics seem to indicate that in a generation or two there will be no more newspaper readers? Is there any evidence that you can see uh, that indicates that this participatory and atomistic and special interest um, uh, uh, culture that's emerging in part because of the way they're empowered by the internet will generate institutions that have the kind of equivalent uh, significance for society, including the significance that Ithiel Poole mentioned in that prescient comment that Henry quoted, uh, uh, the, the question of whether or not the, the, the uh, newspaper's role as a, as a centralizing force, as a unifying force, as a, as a socially defining force uh, will, have any, will have any counterpart in cyberspace. In other words, does the fate of newspapers concern you and in what ways? Now, first of all, as someone who trained as a journalist years ago, I'm deeply concerned by the fate of newspapers and I think they continue to play a vital role in the culture that we're describing. For me, part of what's healthy about convergence culture is it has both the centralizing power of mainstream media and the diversifying power of participatory media. And it's the interplay between those that I think is what makes the present moment healthy, rich. It's the, skepti it's the blogosphere versus the newspapers that's more interesting to me than either of them by themselves. It's the degree to which the blogosphere forms a corrective process not just questioning what newspapers do, but dispersing information from one newspaper throughout, throughout from multiple newspapers through a community. If we think about what blogs do around information, they form around groups that feel that they're not represented well by a single traditional news channel, and they begin to suck in information from multiple directions and distill them for that community. They're communities that are chronically undisturbed by traditional journalism. If I was a journalist, I'd study where the blog, I'd study the structure of the blogosphere and my, that especially as it touches my constituencies and figure out which groups I'm not covering and which issues I should be dealing with and try to respond to that 
quickly because the blogosphere is a symptom of the, the kind of unequal coverage different groups receive in your society. But they're very dependent, still to a large degree, on mainstream news channels to provide the raw materials they're talking, to, talking about. I think it's a fascinating moment where mainstream provides that shared framework we use to talk to each other about. We then pull it into these different niche publics that debate it, haggle over it, reinterpret it, reappropriate it. Innovation, experimentation, discovery takes place within those communities. And then top-down media monitors that, figures out where that experimentation goes on, and pulls it back into the mainstream. So that we could argue that participatory culture diversifies, that mainstream media amplifies. And that's true of news and information, where we talk about newspapers and citizens, or it's true about television when we talk about media producers and fans, that both of those systems are in place. And I think the challenge is to figure out the relations between them at the present time. I think we're, yes, there's a moment where they're competing. I think that eventually we're going to work through those relationships in ways that are mutually reinforcing. Yochai, I hope you'll respond too, but I wanted to ask uh, Henry to, uh, a partial follow-up. Don't you think that it would be helpful if the terms we use to describe these conditions did not already carry a normative value because the good side is participatory and the other side is top-down? In other words, even the terms in which the, the debate is framed by the, forgive this, uh, descriptor by the utopians seems to me to tip the balance and it seems to me not actually an accurate way of describing the kind of contribution to our society that newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post make nor the contribution to our society to our democratic society that local newspapers make to their local regional communities I think that their endangerment is a matter of great concern because I don't see the equivalent of, of uh, the equivalent institutions emerging uh, in, in other environments, even though I'm, I'm certainly not in favor of force-feeding anyone information that they don't want to get. Yeah, I, don't, I, I certainly am not suggesting that citizen journalists will somehow replace professional journalists. There's questions of training, there's questions of resources, there's questions of time, there's questions of access, there's questions of ethics. They make that a very unlikely prospect and a very undesirable prospect. And I certainly didn't mean to imply newspapers were purely top-down. They play very vital roles in communities. I just simply think that the categories of news that have been constructed over the last decades aren't adequately responding to the diversity of the culture and that part of the reasons newspapers are in crisis is that the, and why blogosphere is taking off the way it is is because they're identifying points of underservice or points where diversity hasn't been reflected adequately in papers. And I think that's true in some ways of the New York Times as is it of any other paper. It's, there's no one newspaper can serve the full range of constituencies in our society today, and so corrective mechanisms are emerging to allow for that diversification of perspective to take place. Uh, but I, don't, I think that that diversification would not be well served if you took the, the power of traditional journalists out of that equation. I think it's a very important function that we still, we still need. Um, <clears throat> it's obviously a very complex question. Um, uh, I think first of all it's important that you, in your follow-up, uh, broke already down things, which was going to be the first part of my answer anyway. Um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal uh, play a particular role um, and they're, as you call it, dear to us because we're the elite. And they're the elite vehicle and they are top-down um, and you don't have to be apologetic about it because um, we do have placed great value on expertise, 
on learning, on um, uh, dedication to reasoned argument, and we do think that it's not all about participation all the time, no matter what anybody says. We do exert in our society a certain value, and we give certain weight to expertise and things that come top down in the social, in the way that we stratify elite versus uh, non-elite. And I think those uh, three uh, 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 in particular serve a role as a common platform for elites to form a common discourse and a common set of insights um, and a common set of conversations. And that function doesn't disappear. That function of here's the place where the elites come to get their sense of what the other people in the elite are reading, that continues to play. Interestingly, by the way, those three relatively insulated from the market forces operating every, elsewhere because of the particular family structure uh, uh, of ownership that has allowed them to remain insulated comparatively to other media that have not been able to sustain that role because of the pressures uh, uh, to massify. They're elites of knowledge, they're elites of wealth, they're elites of political power, they're the people who have a much higher probability of getting things done the way they want to get them done in the society that has wide disparities of power to affect. And some power is economic power, and some power is power of institutional role and, and expertise, and some power is political power, and there are different elites in this country, and they all read the same three papers. Um, uh, and, and that's an important function of these papers, and that's going to continue. So the New York Times might begin to curate all sorts of blogs and things like that, but that will remain. In that same functional, when you start talking about local, genuinely local papers, given that the web is global, it's actually not that trivial to identify platforms that will self-select for geographic proximity. Newspapers are perfect for that. One of the things that's interesting about the Times is that a place where they're not so much suffering uh, uh, in advertising, they're not seeing, which is what I had expected and when I asked it turned out surprisingly, on the local uh, uh, papers that the, that, the network, that, that they own, they're not seeing that much removal of advertising. And so the ability to be, a, again, a platform, this time not for the elite, but for the geographic proximity that is not easily done through the web, the local papers, if you look at boston.com, become a potential place that's a platform for things to happen on the net. Again, because the thing they bring is this. So again, you need to look at the particular markets and the, the particular players and what they play. On the other hand, you know, television changed newspapers. Um, the internet changed them again in terms of getting them back into the business of fresh news. Um, uh, uh, much more than, than they were in, 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 in certain periods. Um, uh, and so they'll have to move. The one last point I'd like to make that is a little uh, orthogonal, but I think important, and that goes to professional values. We all know and have all read about the pressures between the business side and the journalistic side. I just noted the fact that these three elite papers have a particular business structure shared among them that protects them from the business pressures and allows a much uh, uh, a buffer between the market and the journalistic values uh, that drive them. And that's uh, quite special and surprising that it's true of all three. Um, um, 
I think in this regard, an interesting place to look at is a, is a Josh Marshall in Talking Points Memo. Because there you have a blog completely dedicated to journalistic values, using the fact that he does not need millions and millions and millions of dollars to live. He can live in his apartment from relatively little advertising, will not take any grants from foundations only based on advertising because he's committed to showing that a journalist committed to journalistic values can build a platform to work with his readers to investigate, to find opinion, to clear it on a model that is self-sustainable for initially basically one guy and now he's been able to hire two or three more committed to journalistic values, bringing what he learned as a journalist to journalistic values. And the one data point about how important that might be in the future is I used to talk to people about how much, when I talked about free software, about how big the software services market was as compared to how big the software publishing. We think software, we think Microsoft, and we think copyright. But in fact, that's about a third of the software market. Two-thirds of the software market are software services. And each of those thirds, by the way, is bigger than the entire movie industry and recording industry put together in terms of annual revenues. What I recently found out, that that number of two-thirds of the software industry being software services hides a much more interesting fact that's relevant back to journalism and the Josh Marshalls of the world. Half of that, that is to say the size of the entire software publishing industry, is independent consultants. So that's another place to begin to look at where journalistic values, people who dedicate themselves and learn, can begin to become professional sites as individuals, collections of two or three, serving as the professionals in conversation with a peer production system. I realize we're running uh, short on time, so I wanted to just invite each of you to maybe just um, prognosticate briefly on the impact of the things we've been talking about here for higher education. Henry, I know you uh, mentioned the MacArthur series on digital learning and their attempts to kind of map that in, in very deliberate ways. Um, it seems to me that the future is going to be fundamentally kind of hybrid um, in, involving participatory culture, informal learning, the kind of things you were talking about. Um, but th these kind of spaces and the kinds of institutions that you are all uh, affiliated with continue to perform an important function. So what will be the nature of that hybridity? Well, I, I mean, I, I would imagine the relationship of universities to learners as being roughly comparable to the other t traditional institutions and the grassroots energies we're talking about. I mean, that this podcast, you know, this is being webcast, this will be podcast, it'll be out there. Bloggers can point to it and form discussions around it. It becomes resources and communities. It will be listened to around the world, literally, in this new environment as opposed to being held within the locked doors of uh, MIT, so that what even the policy of the forum, which is always free and open to the public, there's nevertheless constraints geographically that would prevent this discussion historically from being heard in that way. It's now out there, and indeed in the culture of open courseware, we're seeing more and more of that stuff flow flow their way out. As you know, I started my own blog this summer, uh, and as I started to write that, I've had people write, well, this is the next step from open courseware, which is in a sense conducting seminars on the web, that is creating a space where the quality of discussion and not just the contents of discussion become part of something that's open to a larger public. And I think that's a real role we play. That is, we have the luxury of spending time writing, reading, thinking. We can play that role in a public discourse that engages a variety of different populations out there and be the sort of go-between 
to be, you know, take our power as amplifiers to tap the diversity of the web and make it more visible and to make sure that certain conversations get heard that otherwise would get buried. And I think that's a very important function for an academic that's very different from the service I play for my, pay for my salary here in this room for MIT. It is I think we now have an obligation to be educators of a larger public in this participatory culture that we're involved with. I agree that it's very important um, to uh, um, allow uh, 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 much greater access to what we produce that's accessible. I wouldn't want to underestimate uh, the difficulties. Uh, for one, uh, one of the great barriers to access uh, to what we do is the fact that uh, we speak the way we do. Um, and it requires quite a few years of learning to even uh, uh, process uh, uh, what we do. So there's a, so there's, a, there's, a, I'm acutely aware of this in particular. Um, uh, um, so that's a real barrier. Um, there are questions of what we could do inside institutions of higher learning, how we can structure our own materials so that they're more participatory. One of the things I've tried to do with the book, and it's much too early to tell whether it's worthwhile or not, is not just make it available for free download, but embed it in a wiki that ideally would allow people to make notes, to give counterexamples and case studies. One of the things I loved was three days after the wiki came up, maybe a week or two, um, somebody who is active in Wikipedia wrote back and said, on page so-and-so, you said that there are no, that Wikipedia is not a traditional community. I said it in relation to Eleanor Ostrom's claim about what's a community. It doesn't matter. But I said, it's not a, you got it all wrong, because you looked at the 60,000. You should look at the communities around definitions. That's where community occurs. That's where people know each other. I learned. The thing became a learning object in conversation with people who he's talking about. Um, I don't know. It's an experiment. We'll see. Um, Structurally, we offer places that are relatively insulated from the market and insulated from having to deliver specific things at specific times. This has made um, uh, uh, institutions of higher learning important support bases for contributors to peer production, be it academic contributors to free and open source software, be it um, uh, students participating in all of these things, so we become an important source of, as it were, the equivalent of the IBM that employs the people who, participates in, who participate in peer production more generally. We are, the, we are a fairly stable, uh, enormous industry that doesn't need to appropriate what we do, and therefore an enormous place for people to exist who participate as members of social, uh, 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 of, of, of social processes, but with the learning, the traditions, the commitments, uh, and so potentially very valuable, both stable and in terms of the values uh, we can bring. Um, I think uh, 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 what MIT did in the Open Courseware Initiative was uh, fundamentally important because it came at a time when practically all universities were thinking of everything in terms of how do I repackage and increase my revenue flow? How do I appropriate this? 
Uh, and this was the first op- uh, university that said, no, 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 no. How do I use this to further my, message, my, 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 my role of public education? And that was an important moment. And I think we see it now in the move to open access publishing and PLOS, uh, uh, Public Library of Science. Um, we're beginning to see early stages very hard to take what we learned here and port it into patents in the biological sciences to rededicate the university to providing its output as a basic input into open uh, 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 science and development and implementation so that things can reach uh, the edges. So we can, be, so, so, so we can begin to see these uh, uh, occurring elsewhere. Um, but as I said, I think we shouldn't underestimate the degree to which universities are conservative, the degree to which there is deep disagreement within the university on the transition away from what started in the 80s towards more business-like model and back towards at least a self-conception and now the feasibility of practice of dedication to the education and learning in the interest of the public. Well, uh, you raised open courseware, and let me say something as an MIT faculty member. I'm a true believer in the open courseware mission. I think that MIT's leadership is fundamentally flawed in this area by its unwillingness to stake out a very strong claim for fair use. That is, I think MIT had a position where it could have said, we now are educating the entire world via MIT. The rights that we accept as educators in a classroom to distribute materials, quote materials, reference materials, ought to be extended to our educational mission to the society, and we should be defending a much more broad definition of fair use that allows materials to be circulated rather than taking the most narrow, picayune notion of copyright and applying it to every piece of material that passes through open courseware. If I'm going to give my materials away for free as an MIT faculty member to the world and I'm sort of expected to do that as part of my role within MIT, then I want to be able to actually represent fairly my use of other people's materials through my classes through open courseware. And as long as open courseware is not doing it, I've made a principal decision as an MIT faculty member not to participate. Not because I, I give all my, most of my writing away for free on my homepage, but I don't believe in participating in a system that MIT has bungled leadership on in terms of not defending, and not defending fair use uh, as being fundamental to that educational mission. That we haven't gone nearly far enough to think about what it means to really create a participatory knowledge community that MIT is at the center of. Here, here. <laughs> Thank you both very much. I mean, this, if this is the first face-to-face. I hope there are many more. This is a terrific, a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. Okay.